edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Nick, it's late January. It can only mean two things on the calendar uh, in the movie world. There are some brilliant pieces of genre schlock out in theaters, kind of in the moment and on the way. We've got the beekeeper, the fun one with Jason Statham. Over, he's a <laughs> Is the plot that he's a beekeeper dragged out of retirement to go kill people? You know, I, I couldn't tell you, Josh. I'm not really up on the beekeeper okay. IMDb page. I mean, it's no craven. It's no craven. Um, we cool. have we have night swim where they're like, ah, bought a pool. It's haunted. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie called ISS about like, oh man, we're on the International Space Station. The world's exploding. Kind of looked yeah, cool, actually. If, I was about to say that one looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's like uh, uh, the thing, but what if in space? Yeah, like I felt bad kind of sticking it with the beekeeper, but I didn't really know what else to put it. Uh, we have Argyle, everyone's everyone's favorite movie. Uh, Jesus Christ. Lisa Frankenstein, got Madam Webb coming soon. We're just, we're in the part of the season officially where we had our like, our big meals last month with like the Oscar stuff, which we'll get into shortly here. Um, and now it's like, just here's some candy and like Reese's cups for you that are not good for you whatsoever. We're wading through the sewage that is dumpuary. And, it's dumpuary. Uh, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this terminology, but for the audience's sake, I think we should probably explain what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, movie studios have this tradition yearly. Uh, do you even know when it started? I don't know when it started, but it has always been like January to February. Yes. Sometimes January like even f- into March, April. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on the year, but the whole tradition is, and I don't think they like to think of it or frame it as this way, but they just release their worst stuff right off the bat so they can go into the rest of the year like a clean slate and be like, hey, we got all that out of the way. The summer season is obviously our big movie market. So that's what we're going to put our best stuff for. Oscar season goes with the Oscar stuff and kind of more experimental stuff. Um, I would say there is a good mix, though, I think starting in, in February, March of like good stuff with Dumpuary. But for now, it's, it's Dumpuary. <laughs> it's tough. Uh, so I think the best thing you can do for yourself is probably kind of uh, start checking off some of those Oscar films from your checklist. Well, and that's what I think uh, theaters are doing right now is a lot of the theaters near me are showing the Oscar nominated now. And I'm sure by a lot of people, honestly, because there's really nothing else at this point. It's like, hey, migration, animated ducks. What do you what do y'all feel? It's like, no, you could go watch poor things if you want. You go watch Godzilla if you want. You could go watch Oppenheimer Barbie again if you want. Right. Yeah. Origins playing over by me. I really want to go see that soon. The Ava du- the new Ava DuVernay film. But other than that, really, is not a lot coming out right now that uh, tickles me fancy. Mm, but the other good part of late January is that the Oscar nominees are here, Nick. Um, so I think we should start the show there in earnest before we get back to Dumpuary and why we're doing the movie we're doing. <laughs> um, so do we want to start with the Barbie of it all? Because that's been the biggest talking point, rightfully or wrongfully. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was a little surprised to see no Greta or no Margot um, for Best Director or Best Actor. I thought that was a little bit of a slight for sure. For sure. Um, definitely in Director, but I was happy to see Justin, Justine Trouet get in there for Anatomy of a Fall. That felt kind of like replacement play of that, mm. I guess, which feels kind of wrong. Given the circumstances, and I think uh, the shining achievement of Anatomy of Fall is its script. So, 
just a little strange. And I really, I know we both are kind of a little more divided on Barbie, but I thought Margot Robbie was brilliant. And I thought she really carried that movie in a very graceful, and beautiful way. I've got two things. Uh, number one, this is the thing I, I texted you. Someone go find the directors, writers of Nyad. Give them a big hug because they're going to be going through a tough two months here where everyone everyone looks at Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know. And they're going to be like, sub them out for blank because they're just the automatic like old world kind of like sub out that people are going to go to. Well, it, it's a class. It, that and Rustin are the classic yes. like. What I did find interesting is I think there's only one film that's released by a streamer that's nominated mm. for Best Picture. Which is officially the end of that. Like, hey, we know the pandemic really screwed up some things and the release schedules, but you know, go back to the movie theater and see theatrical releases. And I like that. That was a really cool thing to see. Those two, Rustin and Nyad, both feel like, hey, Netflix, let's throw that money around. Let's throw that cachet around. You know, so as much as I agree with you, I don't really think they need a hug because they should just be hugging themselves that they got there in the first place, kind of. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. The people who made Nyad, uh, this is a Nyad podcast so far, you who made Nyad, I think uh, they don't deserve your hate. They just made a movie they felt passionate about. And they didn't know. They didn't know or anticipate it be like the backlash burner of everything else, um, which leads us to back to Barbie. I think the Margot snub is almost... I don't want to say worse, but it feels more glaring to me than the the, the Gerwig snub. Because when we look at the, and this is a good point, I feel like people have kind of forgotten, the best director category, it is so stacked that, and this is nothing to do with or take away from Greta Gerwig, but like, it's hard to just sub her in and be like, oh, that's an easy person to take out. Whereas actress, it's like, you know, <laughs> Annette Benning, I, I don't know. Carrie Mulligan, I don't know. Whereas Margot Robbie, it's such a like titanic effort in Barbie and she has to really carry that whole movie humor wise drama wise she's the literal main character in the like actual plastic doll she has to give to life Yes, that I don't know how you could go okay let's give it to America Ferreira but not Margot Robbie it feels like you can't have one without the other if you're going to have neither then I guess like that'd be a fine thing but yeah and I mean you know Barbie made a billion dollars Margot Robbie is one of the producers on it and I'm sure Greta Gerwig participated in some form of a back-end deal. So they ain't hurting, you know? So they're no. probably going to be fine. And there's other nominations it's, it, they'll be able to be there for. But yeah, it's just, it feels like, hey, in a time where you're trying to get more people to watch the Oscars, maybe nominate Margot Robbie. I mean, just over Annette Bening, Just I love Annette <laughs> Bening. This is definitely, she's playing hard to get that Oscar. And um, it feels like almost like the Glenn Close situation. Where mm. It's like, damn, she's been nominated this many times and she still hasn't gotten it, but... The work isn't the proof is in the pudding, and I think the work and I think the work that Margot Robbie does in Barbie is so integral for that movie to work that if you take her out of it and replace her with anybody, it's just a completely different movie and falls flat. I, I would agree, and I think the other double edged sword of this is the Gosling nomination. Um, I'll say it I love Ryan Gosling, he's the Goz, he's our guy. You and I gushed about him on the drive episode with Devin. Uh, Charles Melton should be there, not him. If we're going to do like, who's the best five performances of last year in terms of degree of difficulty and execution, I found Charles Melton far more impressive than Gosling. It's not a knock on Gosling. I'm happy for him. I think he's terrific as Ken, but like, come on, they're not doing the same thing. (laughs) That that roof scene um, in May, December that Charles Melton pulls off is 
one of the best acting moments of the year, no doubt. Um, this is one of those things that makes it complicated too, where there's such a difference between the Golden Globes and the Academy, where it's like, hey, you can be nominated in drama, or this performance can be in comedy, etc. So it makes it a little more difficult. You got to really kind of round out the pool and, and kind of have a mixed bag, I think. Um, I don't know. I, I, there's nothing here to me that really sticks out as like, whoa, that's no. pretty crazy. For for the most part, it's a pretty vanilla Oscar year. I've seen all of the best picture movies besides Maestro, I think. And I, it's yeah, not, there's much. not, there's not one of them that I look at and I'm like, mm, that, something else should be there. Yeah. I think for as much of the complaining has been going on, on the internet, this is a really good movie year and they picked a lot of the great movies. Uh, personally, I feel that way. Nothing stands out to me to your point of just like, huh, other than the Nyad stuff, which I hate to keep harping on, but it, I was watching the, the stream and I, I saw their names pop. I was like, really? Because I only see the truth for Nyad. I was like, they're doing this, huh? They're giving Foster and Benny Nyad nominations. Yeah, that's a that's a movie star play with a studio with a bunch of money. So yes. kind of felt that coming. I will say real quick, I was really happy to see the Zone of Interest get the love it deserves. Um, not an experience that I would recommend for everyone to go see the Zone of Interest at 12 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, just kind of a me thing, I guess, but. That movie has been that movie has been rattling around in my brain since the day I saw it. So uh, that's a work of art. That's one of the most incredible things I've seen in a long time, and I think we'll probably talk about it more. Had I seen it, you know, in 2023, it probably would have been right up at the top of my list. So a lot of great work here. American Fiction would love to shout out Sterling K. Brown, who's got like such an amazing complex role in that film, where he also brings levity, but heart and. Like kind of like the sincere side that is missing from the more cynical monk character played by Jeffrey Wright, who's also nominated. Shout out the dog. Mm. Uh, brilliant work by a lot of people this year. So, yeah, I'm happy with a lot of the nominations. I guess I got to see Maestro now that got nominated so I can round out the year. Yeah, um, <laughs> you can. I, that's that you can. That's all I'll say on Maestro until we get to the Oscar episode. Um, I was just delighted by just like the amount of representation, I think, in most categories. Like, it doesn't feel like it's male-dominated or white-dominated. you got Coleman Domingo and Jeffrey Wright, an actor. Actress supporting role, you've got Sterling K. Brown. And then actress and Lily Gladstone, obviously. Sandra Huller for an Oscars that has increased becoming more Eurocentric or more Euro-friendly. I was glad to see that. Um, actress in nomination or supporting role, Danelle Brooks and Divine Joy Randolph and America Ferrer. Really happy to see that. Um, and then animated, um, your boy Elemental. Don't know how this happened. Uh, nominated for an animated feature film. Does this mean kind of that I won the draft in your like well, estimation? No, <laughs> no. I had Oppenheimer and Barbie, dude. You can't keep with me with like, yeah, but Elemental Oscar nomination. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Oscar uh. nominee. I was really a, when I saw that pop up in the stream. I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, really? How great would this? it have been? How great would it have been if that's the only movie I had that got nominated for an Oscar? I just fumbled and didn't get Killers of the Flower Moon and just like picked something <laughs> terrible. And my one Oscar nom goes to Elemental. If that movie somehow wins the Oscar, you should be eligible to go up on stage with the team and be like, I should get an Oscar. Yeah, you should go out there with them and be like, Yeah, guys, super happy that you chose us. We love this movie. We love making this movie. I mean, rooting for this movie. Uh, just great experience, Elemental. And then, and then just Jimmy- all out of breath, I just take the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Kimmel's like, wow, you, you you saw it, right? You loved it. You're like, no, still haven't. 
um, you catch it up on the other ones, but I'll get to Elemental next. But thank you guys. Thanks for the Oscar. <laughs> Just a good year. Just a good year. Um, don't have a lot of complaints. Good job by the Academy. Uh, directing is really fun. But my big takeaway before we get to our next movie, um, it does feel like Oppenheimer's year hard now. Now that like it's a the, runaway train. Yeah, now that the nominees are solidified, everyone that I thought could maybe challenge them, I'm like, I think Paul Giamatti is the only thing standing in its way of sweeping a ton of the major categories. I think Poor Things having 11 nominations says something too. Mm. Look out for some of the below the line, you know, production design and editing, things like that. Look for look for something like that to be a, a possible upset. I think probably editing goes to Oppenheimer just because that editing of that film and its pacing is so integral. So I think that's probably got that one in the bag. But as far as some of the other ones, like costume and, you know, production design, look out. There, there could be some surprises, I think. Mm-hmm. One question for you. Yeah, hit me. Do you think Christopher Nolan was upset that he was one shy of breaking the record for Oscar nominations? <laughs> I don't think he gives a shit, honestly. I don't think That's he does guy, <laughs> I can't believe that was a talking where it's like, that dude doesn't have a phone. He does not yeah. care about anything that has to do with anything. He just wants to go make his movies and like chillax and do his thing. Kind of trying to do something where there's a bomb. In the, it's actually a real bomb in the middle of the desert. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of impersonations coming up soon, folks. Get ready. Strap in. Dude, I, I am so not ready for the Kimmel presentation of, of the, this year's Oscars. There's going to be the cliche jokes and just like, oh, can you believe it? Three-hour movies. It's like, shut up, loser. You think he, you think he touches the Aaron Rodgers drama? You think he, he lets it die? <laughs> he probably brings them on stage and they have like a little skit. That'd be really fun. That's how they, they, they bed fences. <laughs> they bro out, bro. <laughs> yeah. Um, but – from the Oscars too, nothing that has ever been Oscar nominated and is actually quite shitty. Uh, the Taken franchise. Let's go, baby. So we're doing Taken, as you can tell by the title of this episode. Um, I chose it. I'd never seen it, but Nick had came to me and he said, "Hey, let's do like a a January dumpuary theme movie that actually did well critically and commercially." And I was going through the list, and guess what, guys? Shocked to believe it, but it's a narrow list. There's not a lot of good movies in, in this run of time. <laughs> it's it's a lot of just like, yeah, no, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch that. And when I got to Taken, I was like, you know what? It might be nice to just like, I, I say this politely, but rip on a movie for a while. Because we haven't done it in, in a minute. It's been a while. I'm trying to think back to the last time. I mean, I was a little bit of a grumpy Gus about Unbreakable, but like, I can't remember the last time we both were just like, eh, maybe Prometheus. Like, I, mean, I <laughs> maybe, say, but I like, but I like Prometheus. Like, I think that's a fun dumb alien movie. <laughs> well, even with Unbreakable, I think we can like at least respect M Night Shyamalan's career and Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like admiration there. There's not a lot of that <laughs> taken. This is um. Wow, it's a movie. It's a real just like huh, people. People they made they made two movies, two more of these, huh? Let's just be frank. I mean, from moment one of this movie, this movie is swinging out of its shoes. Yeah, whether it be the dialogue, the situations the characters find themselves in, the kills, <laughs> how oh, he yeah. gets from point A to point B, like everything. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Strap the fuck in, folks. The whole crux of the movie being fucking U2 for teenagers. It's like, what? What are we doing? What year is this? Yeah, Kimmy. Also, Kimmy with the worst run in cinema history. Oh, I my mean, God. It's just, it's a, abysmal. 
I have some notes on the Maggie Grace characterization, but the act performance, it's not terrible. I'll give her that. There are far better January releases that I think we could have talked about. I, I did I did look for some other ones. Cloverfield kind of came to mind. Uh, Before Sunrise, a favorite of mine. Split from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, Paddington. But I almost feel that Taken embodies a lot of the W-wary feelings that Hollywood is kind of stuck in. Because, and this is the great way to lead into it, is Taken one of those influential action movies of the century? Think about how many old guy action movies we've gotten post-Taken. John Wick. Before Taken, <laughs> you're dealing with like Rush Hour, The Transporter. This is kind of the action era we grew up in, Nick. And it's a lot of just like, bleh. Like there's a lot of just like, oh yeah, generic action movie. Nothing really jumps out. No thrills, no frills, no big personality. Just kind of nothing. They'd been making the same movie since 1990. Just putting a different dude in the lead. Yeah. This also starts though, real quick. It does kind of start something that just clicked with me. You know who's kind of the the beginning of all this is Harrison Ford. Ooh, you think? I'm the president. I'm a fugitive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a witness. I'm a witness. You know I'm a I mean? witness. I'm yeah. a Star War. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I'm older, but I'm all these things too. That's true. That's true. I think so. This is the other part of the take and stuff that we can get to real quick as a detour, but like. I think the reason people like this movie so much and they keep making this type of movie is every old guy doesn't want to feel old. So they claim the movies where old guys look young and do cool things. This is 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I talked about this off mic. This movie is like what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Transformers (laughs) is to children. It's like, nah, dude, I'm going to morph into a car. Watch out. Like, yeah, dude, I can hop over that fence and wrestle that fucking alligator. Put that bitch in a headlock. Like, no, you can't. Stop watching Taken 5. Every dad watches this movie and goes like, you know, it's not like Neeson has abs. It's not like he's got like washboard abs and he's this total hunk. He's got these biceps that bulge out of his arms. It's a normal looking guy. Piss, though. Wow, Jesus Christ. We're really cutting loose. I'm okay with it. Um, so, so Neeson looks very plain. So I think a lot of dads are like, well, I could be Liam Neeson. And it's like, no, you fucking can't. You're not going to You're France. Not. You are sure not. <laughs> and I think people just love the old guy action movie because it's like, oh, man, there's still time for me to do that, huh? And it's like, not really. No, because you see, they have stunt doubles that are 20 years younger than them with wigs on. So maybe reevaluate your life choices here, buddy. Yeah, let's let's circumnavigate that one. And after Taken, the, the old guy action movie genre is like full in charge. We have The Expendables. We have Red. We have John Wick. We have the Equalizer. We have nobody, um, and I'm sure there's a lot worse examples of like the Taken genre being like expanded upon. Uh, but I don't want to go through them because they're probably all straight to video DVD releases because they all fucking suck. But the crux of the matter here is Taken is a giant action movie for this century. Yeah, I mean, I will say, and I kind of have this written down. But I have one good note much for this movie and you know what i'll just spill the tea now the kidnapping scene is is visceral is a visceral scene it's yes uncomfortable it's shot well it feels scary and i remember that was a big sticking point for the trailer so i feel like that got everybody into the theater and what that scene does really well is we've been with kimmy for a couple minutes now she got Mm -hmm. off the plane to get picked up at the airport we see the kind of tension build when that guy makes the phone calls, like two females, possibly around 18. That scene is really well done. 
it's everything that happens before <laughs> and after that's just kind of not kind of nuck and futz. <laughs> so she's kidnapped 25 minutes in. I wrote it down in my notes. And I was like, for a movie called Taken, it does feel like that should happen like a little earlier. Because like we're we're having these extended scenes where they're like, hey, look at Brian having some beers with his buddies. Uh, Brian's going to this concert. He's really guarding this gal. Uh, Brian's ex-wife sucks. Uh, Brian's gift not being appreciated. It's a lot of just like, oh, man, Brian. It's like, hey, the movie's called fucking Taken. I came here to watch this girl get taken and leave me to go beat people up. Why am I waiting 25 minutes? My daughter wants to be a singer, and he did. <laughs> yeah, this movie feels like it good? was written. It was, it was pretty good. Was I'm getting there. Good. I'm getting there. Maybe by the end of the episode, you can do the monologue for us. Maybe. Um, but this movie really does feel like it was written by two like 50 to 60-year-old men that are trying to impersonate like a cool young vibe aesthetic. And I will say, too, you can feel the like European-centric mm. of this film. Like that scene, the way it's edited, does when Brian comes into the apartment, does the Wong Kar Wai thing where it's like 60 FPS and it's all shaky and yeah. blurry and... Like it, you can feel the flair and the flourish of like, oh, this is not directed by somebody who's from America, which is something that I really kind of clicked on too quick, especially the way it handles people in politics. <laughs> the other part of what makes Taken so influential is it spawns the whole other Liam Neeson action movie genre. And it's very weird to me because growing up, I, I didn't think of Liam Neeson as a dramatic actor because of the age I am. I thought of him as an action star. And that's very, very weird the more research I've done on this. He's got a really weird career. Yes, he does. We will talk about that in depth, but this is a segment I've called Taken Advantage of a Concept Because Hollywood is Created to Be Bankrupt. These are all the Liam Neeson crime thriller action movies since 2008. Nick, are you ready? I'm so ready. The A-Team saw this one in theaters. Actually kind of liked it back, back in my youth. Pretty solid movie. Actually, okay, it's not that good. The Next Three Days, Unknown, The Grey, which is what this podcast should have been. The Grey's a good movie. Yeah, I should have picked The Grey. It's a, it's a January release, I think, just like Taken, but it's actually good, and it's actually like quite legible. Yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're talking to the guy who picked Saw 11, so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you have nonstop, which is like, what if it's Taken on a plane? Yes, yep. With with Julianne Moore. Am I rem- right in remembering Julianne Moore is in that movie? I've heard that's, that's halfway decent, too. Can't say I've watched it, but... <laughs> And Julianne Moore is a nonstop. What are we doing, Jillian? Come on. Jeez, that movie made $200 million. Oh, my God. After nonstop, we go Taken 2 and 3. We had to double up on the franchise. Doubles up. Come on now. A Walk Among the Tombstones, which I've heard is quite good, actually. That movie's not bad. That movie's not bad. Okay. We have Run All Night. We're only about a third through the list, keep in mind. We have Run All Night after that. We have The Commuter, where it's like, Taken, but he's on a bus. Uh, so yeah, we have Cold Pursuit, we have Honest Thief, we have The Marksman, which is a movie my dad pointed to me. He's like, Oh, that looks pretty good. And I was like, No, it doesn't. Don't do that. Do not spend money on the fucking Marksman. Cold Pursuit, which is just like, <laughs> Hey, what if Liam Nielsen but yeah. in truck on ice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing about all these movies before we get back to the list. They're all one sentence summaries yep. Liam Neeson, terrorist, bus. Liam Neeson, terrorist, plane. <laughs> Liam Neeson taken again. Liam Neeson taken a third time. <laughs> Liam Neeson sniper rifle. Liam Neeson yeah. ice car. 
It's just unbeatable. I mean, it's just, it's great. We have Blacklight, we have Memory, we have Retribution. This is where we get into the like, these are movies? In the lane, Land of Saints and Sinners. And then we have a movie just called Thug. And don't worry, folks, there's more. Nisan is currently in pre production on Ice Road 2, Road to the Sky. Yes. I think it's just more like Liam Neeson, Ice Truck. A, th- a third time. <laughs> We're doing it again. We have Run All Night 2. And then there's a movie he's in called The Riker's Ghost where he is a convict that has to break a terrorist out of prison. So, thanks, Taken. Thanks for that. Really good work. Yeah. Just, um, I don't know. It's it, it's a lot of just like, huh, Neeson just doesn't want to leave this, huh? He really enjoys this for some reason, or, or he just wants to make the money out of it. Well, yes, but also, you know, I don't know if we've probably won't get into too much of this, but Liam Neeson's wife did tragically pass away mm-hmm. in a ski accident. So I wonder if there has been a little bit of that of just kind of throwing himself into the work for the past couple of years to deal with that. So yes, I do agree. A lot of these are shite. That's true. And I think what complicates the whole like taken <laughs> Neeson <laughs> career. He's a good actor. He's a good actor. He's an underrated career. It is is something we'll get back to and dive into more later. But I think on the whole I think tons of actors would take Liam Neeson's post pre taken career, honestly. You look at my IMDb. <laughs> I'm underrated. Why? <laughs> it's just getting more and more Irish the more you do it. Like, it started out like a little, just like gruff okay. American where he's like, oh, I'm Brian Mills. And now well, that's like, what oh. he does. <laughs> I, 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 I know. He, he drifts, man, heavy. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know where he wants to go. My favorite part about the Taken research is I went to the Taken wiki, which is a real thing. You know how like people make like fandom pages yes, and things? Yes, yes, yes. I was like, is there a Taken wiki? I want to get some more information. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get some more information on Brian Mills. They made a two-season prequel show. Well, I watched the prequel trailer for season one because I, I don't know. I have, I have a lot of time oh, okay. to waste. I have a lot of time to waste as we're getting into. And the actor is doing an American accent. And I was like, wait. Is the implication that Brian Mills is just an American guy? Like, are we really doing that thing from the 80s where you're like, ah, Schwarzenegger, that's John Smith. Like, what? No, he's not. Brian has, like, the off-screen, all-knowing power of the action hero. Of just, like, I knew that guy 30 years ago in France, found him, you know, just (laughs) a couple couple million people in Paris, but didn't take me long. I'll find you. Hashtag taken. (laughs) Yeah, and so they just they list his nationality on the wiki as American. And it's like, you guys could have fudged this so hard. You could have been like, oh, he worked in Ireland, moved to America, met his wife, settled down. But like, they don't bother with something. like, nah, he's American, so Liam, we need you to do an American accent. And then have yeah. them, he's like, I don't want to do that anymore. They're like, great, cool, keep rolling. I'm a, I'm a preventer. Oh, okay, thank you, Liam Nielsen. I forgot about that branch of the military. Thank you very much. <laughs> Forgot about the preventers. <laughs> Our truest, strongest, bravest men, the preventers. Thank you, Liam. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Taken comes from the brain of director Pierre Morel and Luc Besson. Uh, Morel is a Frenchman who has roots kind of all over the film industry. He starts his career in the 90s as a cameraman, then a cinematographer, and then a director. His most notable work of a cinematographer in the first Transporter with Jason Statham. Real High Bar, uh, and District 13, which is a French film he directs. If you go through his filmography a lot, you're always going to see the name Luc Besson attached. And that's because Morel works on The Transporter and Besson writes it. 
Morel works on Unleashed, and Passan writes it. Morel works on Taxi 4, a Frenchman with a script by Luke Passan. Morel directs District 13 by a script by Luke Passan. I mean, they're thick as thieves, and it's kind of like this relationship where they're like, I'm working on a movie, you come over, you're working on a movie, I'll come over sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke Passan, if the name sounds familiar, he's not a nobody. He, he is the writer-director of Leon the Professional and The Fifth Element. In the late 90s, he had this big push of like, oh, he's one of the next like action kind of genre guys. But I, I believe the fifth element went so poor where they were like, mm, we're all sad on this. Yeah. Also believe he directed the most expensive independent film of all time. Which would that be? Uh, Valerian in the City of a oh Thousand Planets. Oh my god. That's him? <laughs> it is both the most expensive European and the most indis- in- expensive independent film ever made. Well, that worked out really well for them all. I'm really happy for all of them. When you're like, Cara Delvin's our lead actress. It's like, okay, interesting. <laughs> the reason we're so harsh on Luke Besson is he is a shitheel person. And so yes. in a lot of episodes, we try to refrain from being so harsh on some people. Uh, Luke Besson deserves it. So if you want to do some, some research, do that. Um, but he basically comes up with the idea for Taken. He pitches it to Pierre Morel at, over dinner. And Bassan's like, look, I don't know the beats, I don't know the characters, but it's roughly about a father traveling to Europe to find his kidnapped daughter. And he agrees to direct. Uh, Bassan stays on board as well. He writes it uh, with his frequent collaborator, Robert Mark Kamen, in what is, I'm sure, a lengthy, daunting writing process. It is insane to me that he went to the director and went like, look, I don't know if the story beats of this yet. And it's like, there are no story beats, bro. Your movie's just like, uh, he goes there, he kills him. He goes there, he kills him. He goes there, he kills him. Like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? This is interesting because it's a prime example of something we talk about on the show where I think we praise manipulation of an audience. Mm. This is like wonderment of an audience where it's like people love The Killer. I think that's an excellent movie with B-movie material. Mm. People glom on to Taken, but it's a B to C-minus level film with... A plus to B plus talent in the lead. So it's very interesting to me how we get caught up in these things. Like, dude, have you seen Taken 3? Like, Taken was a real thing for a minute, you know? It was like I, the, yes. the wonderment of an audience in the early 2010s is just fascinating. Well, I, I want to throw this at you real quick. I feel like part of the reason Taken succeeds so well is that we're seven years removed from 9-11 and it's primarily this movie about like tough American goes abroad and teaches foreigners not to mess with him and his family. And I think, and this is something we can honestly just say now as we're talking about the writer's director, this is a pretty right-wing movie for the most part. A lot of its ideas, a lot of its yes. characterization is very heavy on like the standard strong man, tough guy, going to go stop the bad people. And I think a lot of people, especially close to 9-11 and in the midst of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, are really drawn to that idea. It's it's a fair assessment. Because, like, look, this movie doesn't paint Albanians in a very sympathetic light. You know, it's very, very harsh. It doesn't paint Albanians, French women. folks, women, <laughs> America, yes. in any really yes. great like Like, everyone is like a work training video stereotype of a trope in this movie. Like Stuart, yes. rich billionaire, uh, Lorraine, the ex-wife who's like in it for the money, who was just so terrible, even though her husband was gone pretty much yes. for five years straight. And well, the me, the stupid American daughter. 
And the movie's like, oh man, Brian, he was serving his country doing his time, and this woman betrayed him behind his back. It's like, exactly, yeah. Well, I don't think it's quite that simple, folks, but sure, we could go yeah. with that characterization because it, it fits your French, you know, ad- attitude or whatever. It's a very odd, super pro American movie made by people that are primarily French. I don't know how these two coalesced, but that's what Taken is, oddly. This is a very light show. I think this episode might, I don't know if it's going to make an hour 20 at this rate. <laughs> so we're going to focus heavily on Neeson uh, because the movie really rises and falls on his gigantic Irish shoulders. Uh, but before we get to his career retrospective and how we kind of get to Taken, we should mention the casting What If, which is that Jeff Bridges was cast as Brian Nils before Neeson even like heard about the project. Interesting. It is. Um, he's kind of doing that now. Yes. <laughs> show on FX. Yeah. Yes. For those who don't know, Jeff Bridges is in the show. Ready for this plot? He's an old CIA operative who gets dragged out of retirement, is forced to go on the run, and then teach the corrupt bad people in charge of the government now not to mess with them anymore. It's taken. But the only thing for me is Jeff Bridges, <laughs> he's tall, but he feels brittle. Whereas like Liam Neeson feels like if you shoved him, he would like be kind of hard to move. There's like a there's kind of like a a little bit of an old dude physicality to Liam Neeson. There's well Jeff Bridges has been gray pretty much since like the the like probably early aughts, right? If I had to guess. I would love to see Jeff Bridges play this character as the dude. <laughs> the dude by is- my daughter. Man. <laughs> I'm sure there's some really stupid like Caddyshack-esque theory that, like, the dude was an awesome Vietnam vet who, after the war, got so disillusioned, he just became a hippie and he became the dude. I'm sure there's some dumb theory out there that's just not worth your time. Um, but it is ironic casting in a, in a couple of senses because, like, Bridge is very much like Neeson, doesn't really scream action star in the run-up to Taken. He's still doing a lot of Jeff Bridges stuff. He is the dude. He's now under Best Supporting Action 2001 for The Contender. He parlays that into like a fun run of like off-ball movies. I don't know if you've seen any of these, Nick. Um, he's in a sci-fi movie called uh, – he's in a sci-fi movie with Kevin Spacey. He's in a drama called Mask and Anonymous, co-written and co-starring Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan, baby. Let's go. What's up? I'm okay. sure – I'm sure Jeff Bridges is playing a fucking country star. He's in Sea Biscuit, and then he's in this teen comedy called Stick It. Um, but what drew him to take in is, is a bit of a mystery to me. I don't know why this guy who's really doing kind of whatever he wants in his career is like, ah, oh, take in. That's the job for me. Yeah. Someone too, who, like you said, like nothing indicates action star or yeah, let's put him in a physical role or of vengeance. Whereas like there's yes. <laughs> that for Liam Neeson throughout the career. Well, Bridges just feels like such a mellow, calm person. That I, I have a hard time picturing him doing threatening almost. You know what I mean? I watched the first couple episodes of The Old Man and I thought he was quite good in it, but that show just couldn't keep my attention. But I think that works now because his voice is even gravelier and he's thicker. Not thicker, but I, I suppose he just feels more like old and like, I don't know, like it, it's hard to describe it, but he has this presence of like, oh, I believe he could fuck you up. But in this era of the mid 2000s, he just feels very laconic and very soulful in a way that I don't know is Brian Mills. <laughs> yeah, he wins an Oscar a couple of years later for Crazy Heart. Yes. So he drops out because he's like, oh, I didn't realize this action movie would require me to do a lot of action. 
don't know what's going on there, Jeff. Maybe put two and two together. Uh, but his post-taken run does kind of tell you to make the right choice. He's got Iron Man 2008, his Obadiah Stane. He's great in it. He wins an Emmy for an HBO movie called A Dog Year, which sounds awful. He wins the Best Actor for Crazy Heart, and then he tries to double up a year later with True Grit and then gets a Best Supporting nod for Hell or High Water. So he did pretty well for himself. I don't think this is like, a, oh, man, he's kicking himself. He's probably had a better career post-taken than Liam Neeson. <laughs> he settled into, well, I mean, you know, Liam Neeson, as we'll talk about, goes and does movies like Silence with Martin Scorsese. So yes. he's, not a, not a, he's not a total chump. But uh, Jeff Bridges, I think, is settled into his old age or older years. Perfect. You know, he's, he's really made some smart career choices in the parts he's chose to play. I'm waiting for one more, like, Jeff Bridges grandpa drama. That's what I'm waiting for. Because it's got to happen. I think he's already got, he's got an Oscar already. I don't know if he's really, he doesn't seem to be the person who pursues projects in the um, pursuit of like awards or like accolades, you know? He seems to me to be much more calculated with the roles he chooses. That's true, but I do think old guys, they do get only offered a certain type of role. And I think for dramas that are supposed to gonna be like a, a sad grandpa movie, you do want to get a big actor for those. And I'm just waiting for Bridges to do one because he, he feels perfect about it. Cause what I love about him and the old man, cause I did watch the whole first season is that he communicates such a history as an actor, just by the way he moves and talks and like gives to the character. And yes. I think he can do that so much more in, in future dramas if he wants to. Um, but we're not talking about good movies, Nick. No, no. Last Jeff Bridges note I would like to say real quick is he settles in rooms really well. Like he's great with yes. like letting beats hang in the air and giving like a really naturalistic answer to like a question. Yes. And I think people would look at Liam Neeson before Taken and go, oh, but why are you saying it's so unexpected for him to do Taken? Because he has the same type of, not career as Jeff Bridges, but you don't think of Liam Neeson before Taken and go, oh, action star. But there um, are there are dots there. There are like there's a lineage you can trace. It's it's not inconceivable casting in the 2000s if you really go back and look at it. So the best way we can kind of explain it is we got to go back to the 1990s, partly because it's informative, but mostly because to get back to the underrated career thing that we're talking about, Liam Neeson's career is pretty damn good. Like it's actually pretty great. 19, no. 1993, Schindler's List, Best Actor nomination, is in one of the best movies of the decade a movie that has endured for now decades and that will probably be forever forever. And he's the lead fucking actor in it. Yeah. Devastating performance. 1995 and 1996. He's in Rob Roy and Michael Collins, two movies where he's a titular character and lead 1998. He's John Valjean in a lay misery make, which that's a big deal. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that movie didn't make a lot of money, but when you're playing Jean Valjean in a major motion picture of lay Miz, you get some attention. But 1999 is where like this dude goes into hyperspace with Qui-Gon Jinn and Phantom Menace. He is the lead in the first Star Wars prequel with a $150 million budget that makes a billion dollars and his face is on the poster front and center. How many times have we watched this movie? Together even, as children, I, I would love to know. It's Too like, many? It's, it's uncounted. Yeah, you can't even count it. God, I just I was... Google Qui-Gon Jinn. I'm, I love that. That ponytail, that green saber. He might be Ugh. my favorite Jedi. It's a real shame he goes out like such a baby, isn't it? They do him dirty against Darth Maul. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he's like, oh, 
that was easy. I did it. And then just Darth Maul just, just slices that guy in half. It's really unfair to Qui-Gon, who throughout is just like the picture of like calm and awesome. The way we have like Temple Run Dodge doing a Star Wars movie at <laughs> this point into the podcast. We're never doing impressive. it. I love We're it. We're never okay. doing it. We, if anything, <laughs> I would rather do the prequels, honestly. I would rather do Taken in 2 and 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like, yeah, Empire Strikes Back. Great movie. No, no. It's it's the whole like Godfather thing of just like I, what's more are we going to add to that conversation there? Sure. But episode one is probably the most like oh I can see the path taken from here at this point. It's an action movie. He's active in a lot of fights. He's got a physical presence in the movie, and he is literally the lead in the Star Wars movie. It doesn't quite scream action movie, but it does be like oh okay he, he's building the credibility. <laughs> Two thousand two, three years later, he's in Gangs of New York. He's working with Martin Scorsese on a movie with a $100 million budget. He has a small but massive role. He's the motivation for DiCaprio. Um, his one scene is an action scene, and it fucking rules. I rewatched it this week. It's great. It's like really – it's really 2000s to go back to and watch it. But it is this really fun, different like flavor from Scorsese. That whole movie feels so 2000s. Like yes. Cameron Diaz casting, everything about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that in a while. Maybe I'll rewatch that this week. You should, but he's got a sword. He's got, he's got like a fucking cross-shaped weapon that he's charging into battle with, and he's just murdering people. Like for people who don't remember him in, in Gangs of New York, it's a five-minute sequence where he's just going around this town square butchering people. And Liam Neeson is like a priest wardrobe. It's awesome. It's really really cool. Um, and where DDL kind of gets to stick around and do more, Neeson's legacy in the whole in that movie is just like blood and action. So again, another step of the credibility. 2003 Love Actually. This movie doesn't help my case, but it is, you know, a monster movie that really helps put him back on the map in a big way. Well, and also it just kind of like lends to what we were saying is like, hey, he's had an underrated career. He's a really talented mm-hmm. actor. Like, while these later films maybe have kind of eluded some of the greater stuff, he's he's immensely talented, you know? Well, and the other part of it that I feel is Love Actually, he's a dad. He's a he's yeah. a widowed dad. And I think this is a giant part of the Taken and post-Taken Liam Neeson as he's always a dad trying to protect someone or something. And that is a big part of the reason it connects with a lot of older you know, white men who are like, oh, man, I love my kids too. I'll do anything for them. They've got to beat up a bunch of people. You know, that's what they want to see. And I think Neeson and Love actually lays that ground to be like, I am a cool dad that people would want to like and kind of you know, feel for and root for. Come on over. We're having a barbecue. <laughs> We're going to watch Love Actually. (laughs) (laughs) Look at me in the scene of Love Actually. Wait, wait. Pause it. I look great right here. (laughs) In 2005, Liam Neeson goes Kingdom of Heaven. It's a historical epic. He's got a sword. He gets in some scraps. Nick, I haven't seen this movie, uh, but is there a lot of fighting? Uh, I've only seen the theatrical cut, but I'm sure he's in the director's cut, which is like eight hours more, which I've heard is actually really good. Yeah, but here's the thing with Ridley. He's been in IDGA, I don't give a fuck mode, since the 2000s, and it's just like, come on, can you, can you make a movie and tell it concisely in two hours and 30 minutes, bud, for me to understand and appreciate it? <laughs> no, he can't. He doesn't want like, to. Like, what are the rumors with Napoleon that it was like a six-hour cut? Is that right? Or is it like a four-hour yeah. cut? I think it's like a six-hour assembly, but there's oh, an actual four-hour cut. Christ, Ridley. Come on. I'm starting to regret this Gladiator 2 pick, because that movie's going to have to come out two years after the fact, and they're like, yeah, and here's the 10-hour cut that explains everything <laughs> of character motivation, because we just cut it all out. 
but the bigger movie in 2005 for Neeson is Batman Begins. He is the antagonist. He's in lots of action scenes. He's fucking playing a ninja and he's fighting Batman. Uh, it's a great movie, number one, that really propels the star and helps clear his path to Taken because he's incredibly physical in, in Batman Begins. Hey, it's Razan Al Ghul. He's, he's one of my actually underrated Batman villains on screen. He is terrific in that movie. I would totally agree. I think he's actually better than everybody else in that movie, including Christian Bale. Really? That first Batman Begins is a little wild with the voice. No. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, that that part. Yeah. I'll defend Batman Begins until you say until you say the voice, and then I'm like, oh, kind of got yeah. me in a corner there. Oh, I can't take <laughs> that one out. And I, and I also think it's. It's before Bale fully hits the stride of being Bruce Wayne, too. Yes, I think he needs to settle into his fame as an actor in The yes. Dark Knight, but he can't do that until post-Batman begins. But Nish is incredible in that. He's going toe-to-toe with Batman. He's the actual physical threat. He's not just Great a Great death scene. Great death scene. He's I'm not playing a... Oh, oh, man, Nick, don't let me go watch Batman Begins again. Is <laughs> Come on now. The last part about Batman Begins is that it makes him a much bigger star than anything else actually has. Love Actually is good, but it works in like the rom-com genre. Kingdom of Heaven is good, but no one wanted to go watch a four-hour cut, so they only watched the actual cut, and they're like, oh, whatever. But Batman Begins is fucking massive. That movie changes the whole genre, the whole industry of Hollywood, and he's the villain. And the bigger thing is that he's a physical villain. A lot of Batman villains throughout the movie so far – you have Scarecrow in that movie, who's not a physical villain. You have Riddler in the Batman, not a physical villain. The Joker in Batman 89, not really a physical villain. He's not fighting Batman so much as in like it's an actual challenge. It's more Dark just, Knight, the Joker isn't is is an is the idea of chaos more than he is any kind of physical barrier to Batman. Exactly. Even Batman returns, I don't find Penguin to be like an actual threat to him. So Neeson is stepping into the first real time, arguably, that Batman has to fight someone to win, and it's an actual contest. And I think seeing him go up against Batman and have it be a challenge is what makes people go, oh, he can do action. I think not just people behind Taken, but the audiences go and see Taken. It made, a realist, it, made it a realistic ideal. Yeah. Yes. And also, he's casually playing Aslan and Narnia, you know, fucking Lion Jesus. So that's pretty cool for him, <laughs> you know. Are they ever gonna finish? Like, is anyone ever gonna get a chance to finish telling all three of those books? Like, has it happened yet? You know, I don't think they need to. I think we should just leave them be. Quite honestly, you know, like Did maybe we just. This? No, I don't. I'm not. Come on. I read the first two when I was a young young. They boy. good. Young cherub. I don't remember. Gosh, don't, <laughs> don't ask me that's to remember no. things. That's a, that's code for a polite no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what Liam Neeson has done throughout these years is like he's worked with great directors. He's worked with Spielberg, Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Chris Nolan. But he's also attached himself to really big IPs like Star Wars and Batman. And I guess we'll call the Holy Crusades an IP in this really weird world we're in. But I, it's kind of what it is. People know what the Crusades are. Um, but they're all rules that like showcase his ability in physical action-heavy roles, but they also make him a bankable, and this is the other part about Taken and why it works, likable name in Hollywood, uh, while being believable in an action movie. They nailed it, babe. That's an underrated career, if you ask me, folks. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, he goes down as one of the better dramatic actors of his generation because the 90s are kind of, I don't want to say barren, but there's not a like a star at that point, really, I feel dramatically. Before Leo, we're in post-prime De Niro, post-prime Pacino, and Neeson kind of comes out as like, oh yeah, he's probably in like the C tier, but really good C tier. C tier, pushing up the B, maybe. Trying to break through that ice. Yes, trying to break out that ice like Razagul, baby. And to go back to our Stallone episode, he's actually following the blueprint we wanted Stallone to follow. Um, like, look at what he's doing. He's working with the big directors on big movies and dramatic roles, but he's also doing the small roles. He's not just going with the arrogance of like, I have to be the biggest actor in the movies. He's going, I'll be one of the chapters of actually. I'll be supporting in the kingdom of heaven. I'll go be the villain in Batman Begins. Um, Schindler's List obviously is a different example, but that's the highest version of that. I'll go play with Scorsese for five minutes in Kings of New York or Gangs of New York. Exactly, exactly. And that's what Stallone should have done, but he never did. But the Stallone niece in comparison is something we'll talk about later in the podcast. But I think it's clear at this point he wasn't Jeff Bridges. It's like, really him? He actually made a lot of sense as an action star in the run up to Taken. One other movie I think we should just hit real quick too is Dark Man, which he makes with mm. Sam Raimi in the nineties too, which is very kind of, you know, stylistic and you know, if you've seen a Sam Raimi movie, you know how they operate and yes. how he gets So he's established himself as likable, cool, and action. Um and his motivations to why he wants to do taken is that he wanted to play a more physically demanding role than he was used to. And people would say, well, he's done that, but he hasn't, hasn't. All these movies we discussed earlier are less physically demanding than I think Taken. Like Phantom Menace and Batman Begins, as action as they are to some extent, Nolan cheats around it a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot of talking in Phantom Menace. <laughs> they're, they're, yes. they're more nibbling at action than I think they're actually biting into it. Yes, and I think the other thing too is – Somebody who is incredibly handsome and has a great voice. Mm. You know, those are the yes. two keys. I know we are impersonating him, but the reason I'm trying to do an impersonation is because I think he has a fantastic voice. And he's sexy. You know, yes. he has he has sex appeal. Women find him attractive. And he's aged really gracefully into his looks, which, you know, that's the one thing. Men, we suck at everything and we're, we're pretty <laughs> crappy. But one thing we do get is we we kind of seem to age up a little bit better when we hit the salt and pepper age, so. He's definitely well, leaned into his looks and his, his voice as his career has gone on, too, I think. Well, Neeson's got several advantages in that area. Number one, he's 6'4". And this is the other part of Taken that we'll get to now. <laughs> he, he's 6'4". He's got a massive frame. He's not, like, big-looking, but when you, when you see him walk around, even in, like, earlier movies, he's very broad, you know? <laughs> and the Huge other part, piece on him, too. <laughs> I'm glad you said it, not me. I'm just glad you said it. But yeah, if you we've all we've all seen the pictures. Come on, <laughs> if you do some research into that aspect of Liam Neeson's life, if you're a gal, you'll be quite interested in going. The, the man's Indian. doing well below the belt. Yes, and he's also ruggedly good looking. Like he's not yeah. statuesque, but Liam Neeson is just a handsome guy. Where you're like, oh man, I can I can fall for that. I guess. Yes, handsome guy, not. great voice. Not me personally, but you know, um, well, and depends on the circumstances. Depends on the circumstances. That's true. <laughs> Interrogating my sexuality in the middle of the Taken episode is not what I expected. Real quick. <laughs> Nonetheless, Neeson signs on, 
and and now we can finally talk about fucking Brian Mills and Taken. Let's do it. Woo! You hit me, Nick. Um, there is a point in this movie where it really kind of just doubles down, and it's like the moment he says, "You don't remember me." I think that's when this film says we are called Taken, and from here on out. We go 120 yeah. miles per hour. Get on in if you want. Yeah. If you do want to sit on the sideline, that's fine. Um, I think it comes a little late, like you said, as far as when it happens in the film. Um, I will say some of the action choreography is pretty good, and I think Liam Neeson does a lot of it, you know? Yes. I don't think there's a lot of, like, huge stunt double pieces, probably the jump onto the boat and stuff like that. But I buy it when he's running down and then he's limping when he gets onto the boat after he jumps down. Um, just an outright ridiculous premise for so many reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that he's going to go to Paris and find her within 96 hours in a city of, I don't know how many million people. And then he does it quite easily, quite honestly, of just like, oh, got it. It wasn't like he followed like 10,000 steps. He just beat everyone up to it. It was like, that's the information I need. Thank you. He's also got this amazing ability that a lot of action heroes do where he has this pistol. And I don't know what store they're selling it at, but it just absolutely never runs out of bullets. No. And he also has this uncanny luck where every single pipe that he's, you know, handcuffed to seems to be very shoddily cemented into the ground so he can just break right off of it and start kicking ass again. So... Yeah, it just it's preposterous in so many ways and so many levels. Like we talked about, finds his French French buddy there in about two seconds. Yeah. Oh, yep, right in the city of millions, knew he was going this way still. It's only been 30 <laughs> yeah. years since we've seen each other. Got that facial recognition though. Fools the entire French police force with a with a goddamn like phone next to a walkie-talkie. But like, don't you have to hit something to make the walkie-talkie start? So how did he hit the walkie-talkie to start and then walk away and then start it? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I do think he's pretty good in this movie though. For for like for this type of movie specifically, it's hard to get a really I don't want to say good because this isn't really good. But the scene where he tells her she's about to be taken, he does a really good job emoting dr- dramaturgically in that scene. Shockingly. I would agree. And not in the sense that like because I thought about it, just thinking about his character and how he would approach that situation. He doesn't break down. He's not, like, punching the wall. He's, like, a calm, calculated, like, tell me all the details you see. But you can see the anger in his eyes, like, I'm going to do unspeakable things to all these people if I get my hands on them. Which I buy, which is, what it's well done. That entire sequence is really done, well done in the other aspect, like we talked about, when they actually kidnapped Maggie Green. Maggie, Maggie Grace. Grace. Maggie Grace is really great in that. There's a moment that he registers what's happening and he has to make peace with what he has to do where it's before he says you're going to be taken. He puts like the phone away from his ear for like a half second. He closes his eyes and you see him go through an entire emotional process in like 0.5 seconds where it's it's like, okay, she's going to be taken. I have to tell her she's going to be taken. I have to convince her not to freak out that she's going to be taken and that I will come save her. And it's him becoming this fucking preventer and going from father to preventer in like a second flat. And it's actually quite well done. It's the difference of casting Jason Statham in that role and deciding, hey, I'm going to go get Oscar nominated Liam Neeson to do yes. that role. Yes. Yeah. And the other moments that he does really well are just like 
those scenes where he's walking around in the first 25 minutes, you buy him as he's trying to connect with this kid. This movie really does ride on in a big way on the father daughter relationship. And if you buy it and if you don't, if you don't, you're not really going to care and you're just going to be regulated to like, oh, yeah, I'm just beating people up. But because of the chemistry he builds with Maggie Grace and those first 25 minutes, and it's more his despair than it is like their connection. But he does it really, really well. And that carries you through the entire movie in large chunks. It, it's it's good stuff. I can't knock him too much. Again, the physicality too. I was looking. I was trying to see. I can't fully tell, but I feel like that's him when he's walking out on the ledge. I believe it is because Liam Neeson went through a long pre-production process to get ready for this movie. He went to Paris months before and he just learned karate. So the thing that you're saying about not a lot of stunt doubles, there's not. He's doing a lot of it. Um, despite his love of commitment, he actually didn't think this movie would do that well. He thought it was going to go straight to DVD and then he just move on with his career, not knowing that this movie would become his career, ironically. He seems to be somebody who stumbles into things like that. He doesn't seem to be – He doesn't like we just talked about with – um someone previously just a couple minutes ago who Jeff Bridges we were talking about yes. very calculated with his decisions whereas Liam Neeson seems to me to be just like yes wherever the tide takes me that's the film I'm in and hey I'm happy to be here and I'll give you the best performance there's a crafty we know that's true because he's made 20 taken movies we know that's where the tide is taken him and he's not getting out of the water but like like you said like I don't think there was any like hey you know this movie if it does well we got a chance to make five of these you know, I don't think there's any real thought process behind it. It's like, take it, my agent got the script called Taken. I read the script called Taken. I starred in the movie called Taken. You know, it doesn't seem like I'm going to make a play at this, like being the action guy. There doesn't seem like there's shame either. There's there's a way that he approaches this movie throughout really his whole career post-Taken where he doesn't really make fun of it. And he never goes, this is stupid, and then keeps doing it. He seems to know what this is and is okay with that. And it's just like, yeah, I keep making him, and people want to keep seeing him, and that's okay for me. There's no, like, oh, I'm embarrassed by what I do to me. And in a Nick Cage way, where a lot of those movies we just mentioned, probably, eh, you know, not very good to bad. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson's usually pretty good in half of them, or at least yes. given it his all in quite a few of them, you know? Yes. Honestly, if I went back and looked at it, I would put The Grey probably in my top 10 movies of that year. That movie's really fucking good, and he's excellent in it. Yes, and we'll get to, is it a shame or a waste of talent later on? But I think he at least isn't mailing it in in a lot of these performances. Is the thing that I always appreciate about this movie and Taken is like, I don't love this movie, but I can see that the guy making it at least cared a lot for it. No doubt, and I think... Had a really strong performance and physical performance out of Liam Neeson, you know? Yes. So we'll talk about his other half real quick. Maggie Grace. She does a really good job, despite the circumstances, I think. The the script saddles her with a lot of weird things. The fact that she's 17 years old and yet she dresses and runs like a 12-year-old. Or like she's all gangly armed and like running around like she can't control anything. She's like, oh, horse! oh gee. It's it's bad. It's laughable. It's up there for worst runs in cinematic history. <laughs> you know, if Tom Cruise is the apex, yeah, Maggie Grace is as low as you can go as far as cinematic runs. When she runs to that airport, 
I had questions. <laughs> I had questions like, did she ever run before? Did we ever get her just on like a track and field course? Just be like, run around a little bit. Let's see. Let's see what the arms do. And then she's just like, Ugh! she's like, she's like, like one of those things outside of like a, like a. She's a Gumby. Yeah, like a car car sale, like one of those big <laughs> blow up dolls. Yeah, it's like, are both yes. your feet asleep right now? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing with your arms? You can either ball them into fists and keep them at your side, let them go kind of flat. She's like. What if I let him go with 360? Cold different. What if axis. I flail him around? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. hey, maybe she should have done that when she was getting yanked underneath from the bed. She would have like, <laughs> smacked one of them. But running aside, she does sell, I think, a lot of these emotions pretty well, all things considered. I really enjoy the taken scene from her end. Neeson is doing a lot of work, but there's a way that scene in her end could become over dramatic and hysterical. And just like, okay, we get it. You're being taken and laughable. But she goes from like scared to panic to anguish to then like accepting the situation really, really well. And it's so well directed where, you know, she sees from across the flat, mm. the bathroom window, her, her friend getting kidnapped. You know, I'm a pretty big dude, but like if two or three guys wanted to kidnap me, I'd be fucked. And that's just like, yes. I can't imagine being a small woman i'm not trying to be disrespectful when i say that's just her she is you know skinnier nature and smaller yeah she's a slight woman like that would be so like scary and they capture that well it is a riveting scene and like i said i think it's the backbone that really sold the trailer when this was announced and it dropped yes and her facial acting has to convey all of that because her words are very much as the situation she's doing a lot of exposition and like you know what they do too, she's doing well. Not sorry to cut you off real quick, but I just want to say, she sells this thing where I wonder if she's so sunshiny and saturated in the beginning to show her innocence and like her her like naivete. And then when we get to Europe, there is this like cousins aren't here. I swear to God, I didn't know. She does have like you know she's like hey, stop telling him where we're going and stop mm. giving him our information and a floor we live under. She is she is hesitant, and then, like you said, her, the way she looks out that window, like you, it's no words really, besides "Oh my god," and like looks across the flat, and you just see her face drop. It's really well done. She she handles it well. So, um, I, it makes me wonder if the things being so on the nose in America are kind of intentional. Yes, I, I give her credit too because she's twenty five years old in this movie, having to play seven, but act twelve. So it is a harder role than I think most movies would require of her. And this specific genre, but she's pretty well. Uh, speaking of giving a lot of bullshit, Famke Jansen, Jean Grey, boy, she's given the traditional shitty, undeserving divorced wife role in these types of movies. Um, it is just awful. It, it's it's not her fault. It's just like, huh? That's characterization is oh. terrible. Yeah. Um, there's one scene where she's atrocious, and then like. After that, she's just like great in the movie, where yes. she's like, "Oh, Stuart, you're impossible." But he gives her the <laughs> horse for her birthday. That part's just terrible writing. Yeah. She didn't stand a chance on that. Like it was just, it's so bad. <laughs> but like when she gets kidnapped again, great performance. When she's like, I, "I'm worried about my, or I want my baby," and like breaks down, starts crying in the room. Like that's really well done. I have a theory I want to workshop with you real quick. I feel like this script fucking sucks and the actors on set got it and we're like look we're all actually talented actors we got Liam Neeson we got Famke Jansen we got Maggie Grace 
let's just improv this on set. Let's find the act- beats. Yeah. Yes. And let's actually say, like, I don't think Luke Besson is emotionally empathic enough with women to go, I want my baby. That feels very much like a woman going like, well, let me put this up in this character's position. I would feel that way because I'm a mother and this kid is 17 and she's still my baby. I don't think Luke Besson has that in him, <laughs> you know? No, and also probably like as much as he is a POS, probably was smart enough to just be like, hey, I'm going to get out of the way. Like I'm yes. going to let this happen organically. Like, And that is you know, kind of more like theater, Eurocentric directing. So, yeah. His involvement, I don't know, but if that's the case, I think more credit goes to Pierre Morel, the director, for being like, okay, I have talented people. I'm making my third feature. Let me let them right. make the acting decisions here. Um, but yeah, the Famke Jansen role. That's what I meant, Peter Morel. I'm sorry. Y- yes. She's got a very broad brush. She she leaves the good, quote-unquote, every man for the rich guy. And it's really laughable that the script and film are more forgiving to the husband character than to her. Like when when Stewart shows back up at the end when she gets home from the airport, he like hugs Maggie Grace like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad you're okay." And there's no hint of like this guy's an asshole, you know? It's like he actually cares for his stepdaughter. That's really nice because a lot of actors in situations in that movie wouldn't. They'd be like, "Ah, oh, evil shitty stepdad," you know? Yes, yeah, billionaire tycoon Stewart. Yes, that has its own private jet. And so the movie's oddly like, yeah, Stewart's a good guy, but his wife, mother of Brian's child, piece of shit, just like real bad person. Like, what the, what are you doing? You think I let my daughter live with an absolute stranger? (laughs) What was that? It's, It's getting better. It's getting better. Nice, nice. Speaking of getting better. Leland Orser's in this movie, Nick. My guy. Leland Orser. They gave him a gig. There's a real missed opportunity that Leland Orser's not like Liam Neeson's tech guy on the phone. The guy in the chair for, for <laughs> Brian Mills. But guess who apparently shows up taking two or three, Nick? Leland Orser. Leland Orser. Leland Orser. <laughs> the, the character Sam comes back twice, baby. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Old dudes who were not in wars telling war stories. Yeah. Never works on film. Shocker, it doesn't work here. Uh, but yeah, sure, Leland Orser. Hey, he's the dad and the guest. And I just want to say, with that new SAG after agreement and that how much the Taken franchise is on cable, Leland's going to get himself some stakes once a week. You know he's getting some that good check residuals. Because <laughs> he's not just like one, of, he's not the evil like husband in the White Lotus who's also one of Liam Neeson's buddy randomly. I don't, did you clock that? No. Yeah, it's the like Tanya's husband in White Lotus is one of the buddies. I've never seen that show. Oh my god! All right, well, never mind. Anyways, point is, we went Orsa being in all three of these fucking movies. That that they're showing these once a week on cable, so that that money just keep flowing for Leland Orser every year for the rest of his life. Good checks, good checks to have. Good checks. Speaking of checks, uh, Taken is a runaway train at the box office. It makes one hundred and forty-five million dollars in North America. Makes $81.8 million in foreign markets combined. That's $226.8 million. It's a $25 million budget. Um, and possibly it's $9.4 million on opening day is the best opening ever for a Super Bowl weekend. I don't know what that's what that's about. I wonder if so many studios are just like, yeah, nothing this weekend. It's a Super Bowl weekend. So I'd well, be curious to see what else is in contention. And what's fascinating, Nick, is this is Giants-Patriots Super Bowl. So I wonder if 
people went, oh, you know what? That's going to be a bad game. Let's go see Taken. Because that's the wild card Giants against the undefeated Patriots. People might just go like, mm, let's go, we'll see Taken instead of wasting time. Like, really pretty game. came out that long ago. It wasn't even the second one. Wow. No. Taken is, Taken is 2008. It's the same. You know what's going to make you feel really old? Same year as Dark Knight. Baba Booey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm old. <laughs> Taken did generate two sequels, aptly titled Taken 2 and 3. <laughs> it spawned <laughs> a TV prequel that lasted two seasons, 26 episodes, explaining how Brian Mills became Brian Mills. I don't know why. I have no Fantastic. idea. Don't know why. Who's like, oh, man, you know what I'm really craving for? The Brian Mills origin story. It's like, ah, oh, he's just a CIA guy. It's not that hard. <laughs> he's a preventer. He's a preventer. <laughs> the Irish accent is my favorite part because it feels like a flashback to the 80s movies where, like, you do have non-American guys playing American guys but having non-American accents in the role. Yeah, and it would be one thing if he just stuck to one or the other, but it's the fact that it's just this like little blend of both that really yeah. throws me for a loop. <laughs> like, Brian Mills, were you in the IRA? You, oh my god, that's the prequel I would want. You have him in yeah. the middle of the Irish Troubles, and then he's like, I'm bombing people. I'm bombing these goddamn <laughs> Britain jocks. Like, give me that. Bastards. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> But I think what makes this movie better than just like, oh man, Schwarzenegger in his 10th fucking movie where he's playing an American guy, but he's not American, he's on Schwarzenegger, is that you really do feel like the born identity fusion into this kind of like formula, you know? Yeah, there's some frenetic camera movement that I like, like 180 cuts per scene mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're fighting and things like that. But But it's cool. There's some good stuff. It's very washed out. The settings feel very dirty in a way that's very boring. Um, and the movie isn't trying to like tone down the violence. The violence is very brutal. You feel the punches land and the shots feel very, very loud. Yeah, not a very bloody movie either. Like, does no. that all in a way that like circumvents having to be gory? Mm-hmm. We're almost wrapping up already. <laughs> <laughs> but why Liam is the question uh, I think we have to answer. And this is the other side of like the Stallone Neeson comparison. Um, Post 1983 Stallone, as we talked about extensively, spent 15 years doing the same action movie, the point of parody. Liam Neeson has spent the last 15 years making 20 taken 20 times to the point of parody. I mean, he was in fucking Ted two. He's doing, doing the take it thing where he's like, oh, I have a very particular set of skills. He's buying like chips and it's like, we got it. You're going to take him. We know. Um, <laughs> plays himself in Entourage. It's just really, really strange that he's just Play, Plays himself in Atlanta. Yes. And a very interesting retrospective look by him. That is very laudable. It, it's very, very well done. If you are a fan of Atlanta, if you've never seen Atlanta, go watch that show immediately. It's one of the best shows of all time. But yeah, very uh, aware performance. You know, Liam Nielsen has, Nielsen has had some slip-ups. Publicly, yep. um, <laughs> in the past least. decade or so, but uh, seems to be somebody who recognizes how that was wrong and yeah, great performance. And I watched that clip yesterday of him in the cancel club bar, or whatever. And I'm like, he's still got his fastball, he still has it, 
And yet he's not nope. doing anything with it really outside of silence. It's it's a dang shame because I think where we were talking about was Sly, it was one of those things where when I brought it up on the episode, I was like, yeah, but if you look back at a lot of the roles that were being pushed that time dramatically, he doesn't fit into them. Whereas now we look at so many of these roles that are coming out and you said, you know, there's only select few for guys 50 to 70. Mm-hmm. He's a great dramatic actor. What I would love to see him do is something more along the lines of like what Jodie Foster's doing right now with True Detective, where it's that's a movie star doing a TV star performance, and I think that is something that he could thrive in. Yes, and the other part that confounds me is he's not an older actor where it's like, oh well, his best performances come from directors who aren't working anymore, or who aren't big enough, or aren't getting funding. They're fucking Spielberg, Scorsese, Chris Nolan, and and Ridley Scott. Like those guys are all yeah. making movies and getting budgets they want to make whatever they want. So the fact that Liam, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it seems he hasn't called in and be like, "Hey, you got any? I'd I'd love to work with you again. I'd love to audition. I'll try anything. Let me get my foot back in my door as my career reaches its twilight to remind people who I am and what I meant as an actor." Yeah. It- and still could slot into a gladiator too, or a tenant, you know? Yes. You could put him in Oppenheimer as any old bureaucrat, and I'd be like, yeah, sure. Cause yeah, he's going to cook for 10 minutes. And that movie's using stunt casting throughout to a certain degree of the Casey oh, Affleck yeah. performance, the the James Remar Matthew performance. Modine. Matthew Modine. Rami Malek. Yes, that it wouldn't be like, whoa, Liam Neeson, I'm thrown out of the movie. The problem, I think, is that he has sequestered himself so much in the Taken world that people don't consider him Liam Neeson anymore. They consider him Brian Mills. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a shame because he's, I mean, also what another thing that I think is hard for him too is his best movie that everyone critically would go towards is such a hard-hitting, devastating watch. Yes. One of those movies you watch what, maybe two times every 10 years just because it's so, it, it breaks you down. Like I, Schindler's List is one of the movies that's made me cry the hardest in my life. So it's it might be one of those other things too where he's got a couple great dramatic roles, but you know everybody's going to remember him for Batman Begins in everything that comes after. Mm-hmm. I think to his credit, there are a few movies we should shout out that he does try in. Um, a Monster Calls is a great little... I think it's English movie that I watched uh, about a young kid whose mom is dying from cancer. And there's like a monster in the tree that he talks to that kind of like soothes him through that journey. He does the voice of the tree monster. He's fucking great in it. It's one of my favorite movies from that year. I highly recommend people go watch it. He's in silence. Fantastic in silence. I would just like to say also another role that like not in the physicality sense of fighting, but like dramatic pain and suffering and like torture he pulls off brilliantly so also somebody should be doing way more voice work yes he is for people to remind people he's the poster for silence it's that silhouette of him in the backdrop with garfield and driver walking through him but i remember the first promotional images of that movie were him it's him with i would that, say like, he's the emotional through line of that movie Yes, so he has done that. He hasn't just done Taken. I think if Silence had gotten more buzz and more acclaim, we could have seen that be the push that gets him more into different stuff because 
Silence makes $23.8 million. It's not a lot of money. Yeah, it's a great Scorsese movie that he had trouble financing even when he wanted to make it back in the 90s. So, Yes, we have The Ballad of Buster Scruggs with the Coens. Just add that to the list of people he's worked with. <laughs> <laughs> and in a short role, very odd that he's just in that movie very casually and that he hasn't gone back to them to be like, hey, anything any, anything I can chip in and, and work on? Um, he's in Widows with Steve McQueen, Viola Davis. Very subtle, subtle movie that should have been an Oscar play, in my yes. opinion. And his last movie is Ordinary Love, which is a serious drama, an Oscar play for real, where his wife is going through dementia and he has to kind of be the caretaker throughout. Um, but sandwiched all around these movies, it's just more of the fucking same thing. You know, we have the Ice Road 2 on the way, like we talked about, and it's just like. You don't have to, Liam. You've made enough money at this point that you can do whatever you want. Likes to work, man. He's working. So he maybe that's that's how he processes and gets gets through stuff. Yeah. Um, the, the teenagers in the movie get through stuff with you, too. Don't know how that works. The, the whole plot point, the whole backbone of this movie, Nick, is two 17-year-old girls want to go fall around 48-year-old Bono. Yeah, woohoo! Yeah. Also... <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and go on a whim here because yeah. we're never going to have any chance to be whiffing the same air as Bono. U2 stinks on ice. Yeah. Most overrated rock band of all time. I've said it for years. It's I'm, That's all I got for you. U2, you stink. I felt that way my whole life, and it's good to know someone else expressed how I feel. Um, oh, I'm, I'm right there with you, babe. What, what's also about this that's so weird is like Bono's not a sex symbol. Like, if they were, like, uh, a 48-year-old John Mayer or, like, who's a comparable person in the mid-2000s, like an older rock star that people would want to go see? Uh, maybe Bruce Springsteen still at that point? Yeah, like, he's kind of got, like, that old blue-collar swagger sexiness. Yeah. But Bono, Bono's got nothing. What's that Bono's about? Stupid sunglasses. <laughs> I wonder if that's a decent suggestion. I wonder if he went to the script and went, I see you don't have a band there. I suggest my Irish Bono <laughs> and just be like, that's how we got you two as a central plot point in this movie. We've got some great albums. <laughs> I'm going to blast some of these songs while we're setting up the shot, if you don't mind. Bastards. Get the <laughs> shot set up. Bastards. Um, who's the best kill? What's the best kill in this movie? It's the light bulb. It's the light bulb. It's pretty cool, yeah. but I do love the apartment scene. When he takes down like all four of them, when he reads this good luck, <laughs> I, I try to keep my own kill count for later. And I was like at three, I'm like, boy, not a lot of murders in this movie. Or rips up. Yeah, yeah. And that one's just like slash, 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 cross, <laughs> slash, slash, cross. Because he just goes to the entire apartment, just like shooting everyone through every doorway. Never running ahead of bullets, never reloading his weapon. You know, escapes the construction site of hundreds of men yes. with with automatic rifles. And his solution to escaping the construction site is to run through a trailer full on speed. Yeah. Just casually. We'll make it. Yeah. Just casually. Uh, I do love the, the decimated the human traffickers um, with the pipe in the basement. Pretty cool. I love when the guy's like, it's not personal. It was just biz. And then just pops him right in the noggin. And just that elevator door comes up back in the party. It was to me. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> okay. This is a new segment I want to propose. 
It's called the Scotty Wondergaard Baddest Beat Award. This is inspired by Scotty Wondergaard and Fargo. If people haven't seen Fargo, I'm going to spoil it real quick. <laughs> Next, you want to explain why you think I, I called this movie the Scotty Wondergaard Award? Uh, yeah, a kid gets a fucking raw deal, man. Yeah, he he's dead. The other one's in jail for the rest of his life. His billionaire Grandpa's grandfather. Dead. Yeah, his billionaire grandfather's murdered in cold blood by Steve Buscemi. His mother was put in the in the what is it? The wood chipper, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, Scotty Wondergaard. Just awful future for that kid. He's like twelve. He's like, I just want to play hockey, and they're like, Well, your mom's dead. Your father tried to kill her. Your grandpa's dead because of your father's greed and ambition and debt. That kid's in juvenile. That kid's a juvenile, or he's like a billionaire recluse because he inherited all of his father's money or his grandfather's yeah. money. Yeah, true. And so I was I was watching Fargo last week, and I and it really struck me how much of a raw deal Scotty got. I was like, Jesus Christ! You think <laughs> Fargo might be a parable about trying harder in school? Then, yeah, I mean, maybe Scotty you just learned his, learned his p's and q's a little more. His mom and dad would still be around. <laughs> But it, it struck me watching Taken too, the same feeling of like, wow, what a bad beats in this movie for people who had no reason to get so sideswiped. Just awful. Yeah. So I wanted to do the Scotty Wondergaard Award for Baddest Beat. My first nominee, Amanda. This is this is Kim's friend. Wow. She's got her bad. She goes she goes to France for a vacation, dies of a drug overdose. And we all love the monologue, Nick. But we all forget, as Neeson always says, and I quote, if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. What about Amanda? Is he just yeah. like, ah, you can take her. <laughs> you know, Amanda's parents are fucking filthy rich, too. They don't yes. pull resources with Stuart. There's no mention of them. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, Amanda's dead, but I got the, <laughs> the, the kidnappers aren't like, don't talk to the cops. We'll kill them both. He could have easily just been like, Stuart, phone her parents, tell her that her daughter's been kidnapped and we might need the ransom money. Because he says, if you're looking for a ransom, I don't have it. It's like, yeah, but you could. Stuart's, Stuart's got all the money in the world. You don't have to do this, Liam. <laughs> like, wh what is he doing? And then, like, she gets kidnapped. She gets sold into sex slave, which isn't a laughing matter. But, like, adding to the damage is her death is reduced to Liam Neeson saying her name. And then just moving on. The scene just ends there and he's out of the apartment. Did he call her parents? Did he tell anyone that she's dead? Did he call the like cops and be like, hey, there's a whole drug den. You guys got to bust this up. We only got 96 hours, man. We got to keep it moving. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so Amanda, just like awful deal for that poor, poor woman. Totally. Oh, man. Contender number two. The driver who ran over Peter, I don't know if we remember the scene. There's that guy Liam Neeson's chasing at the airport. He like jumps onto the truck. He's, he's trying to run away. <laughs> this truck just pancakes him automatically. Yeah, I don't give a shit about Peter. I feel a bit more, more bad for the truck driver, man. He's, that's traumatic for him. Put yourself in his shoes. You're minding yeah. your business at a shit job you probably hate. You are just running your route like any other day. Then out of nowhere walks out this guy. You don't have any time to prepare. You run over and kill him. What's your future looking like here? You're fucking traumatized because you just murdered someone. You're going to get suspended by your employer. There's going to be a federal investigation by the cops. There might be a court case. A jury of his peers could find him guilty and send him to prison. Fucking just because Brian Mills couldn't keep up with Peter. What a name, too, for like, <laughs> yeah. 
linchpin villain, Peter. Yes. It's like fucking Greg from Day of the Dolphin. Day of the Dolphin. Yes. Yeah. We're just like, uh, who's the big scary villain? Ah, Peter Kidman. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, you bastard. Like, he was just like Patrice and add a little more flavor of texture. Yeah, Pierre. I don't know. <laughs> Peter, we gotta stop Peter. It's just like, oh, man. The third contender, my favorite, Jean-Claude's wife. Put yourself in this poor lady's shoes again. An old friend shows up for dinner one night. You invite him in. You cook a really nice meal for him. You're catching up. You're like, oh, how's your daughter? How's work going? You have a perfectly civil night. He's like, oh, I'm thinking about moving closer to France. She's like, oh, my God, that's great. We get to see each other more often. This is great. And then just as you fucking sit down to eat, (laughs) your husband outs himself as a corrupt cop who built your family home and a foundation of corpses. Your husband then pulls out a gun. He yells at you to shut up. Yeah, twice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's such an asshole. He's like, shut up, he's a male. Shut up. It's like, Jesus. And then just when you think all of this is bad enough, the guy you invited to dinner and you cooked for it shows up your husband, like masculine wise, and then he shoots you in the fucking arm and he threatens to kill you and he points the gun right at you again and says, like, the last thing you see before I make your kid orphans is your bullet right in her eye. And it's like, Jesus Christ. You bastard. <laughs> you bastard. It's like, <laughs> what did Jean Claude's wife do to deserve this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Brian Mills, our hero. <laughs> yeah, that's the other point I wanted to get to. They're like, uh, that's Brian Mills, our hero, just shooting this poor defenseless woman. It's like, what? Uh, you can tell this was written by two men. I, I got to tell you. Oh, man. I, you know what? <laughs> I thought it was going to be straight and narrow down the road for Amanda, but I'm kind of thinking John Clark's wife, maybe. Well, here's what makes it even worse. I did some research into Taken 2. You know, assume me. I was curious about the franchise. You know, I really want to know where they go from here. Is she in a sling in Taken 2? Well, in the first 10 minutes of that movie, a parole John Claude comes home to find the Albanian gangsters waiting for him. They torture him. And in the process, they tell him they've killed both of his kids. They don't mention his wife. So the implication is either she divorced Jean-Claude and was like, hey, it's his weekend with the kids, whatever. And now she's husbandless and her kids are dead. Or she is killed because Brian Mills just showed up at her house. It is a, it is a fucking, it is a monstrous break for him. He's like, hey, Brian, you want to stay for dinner? Does Jean-Claude get his comeuppance? They, they ice him too? or They do ice him. They do ice him. So that's good. Yeah, he stinks in this movie too. I had any of Kim's future boyfriends. Uh, for starters, you know Brian's calling up Lee Lenore for a full background check. He, he's going to hold anything against you. You know he'll like keep it for his whole life. And if you do anything wrong, he'll just kick the shit out of you. If she's out late to curfew once, a former CIA operative is going to hunt you down and hold that grudge forever. And if you think I'm fucking exaggerating, Nick, I watched that, those first 10 minutes of Take It Two. Neeson finds out Kim is a boyfriend. He's like, I'm not going to find her. I'm not Liam Neeson. And then he finds where the boyfriend lives. He somehow tracks him down. He shows up. He sizes this guy up. And the the boyfriend's like, oh, Mr. Mills, nice to meet you. And he goes and shakes his hand. Neeson doesn't shake his hand. And then he's like, where's Kim? She's coming with me. And it's like, that's that's the life for this poor boyfriend. Bastard. Bastard. Dating my daughter, you bastard. (laughs) 
<laughs> the final person I want to shout out, the Albanian translator for the Baddest Beat Award. I don't want to judge a book by its cover, um, but this guy doesn't look like he's doing too well. He's in like a really bad suit. He looks like he hasn't showered in a while. Um, yeah, he looks like he might might have done some little walking on the streets like the like the girls are doing a couple minutes before. He's like, I'll take one hundred fifty dollars to translate whatever you want. It's like he's desperate. He's desperate. And he got in that car and was just happy that Liam Neeson had pants on. He's like, okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, I really am just translating. That's all I'm doing. Thank God. <laughs> this isn't like last week. All right, we're good. We're good. Yeah. And the other thing I looked up, there's only 7.5 million Albanian speakers in the world. Most of them are in Albania. So <laughs> where this guy's going to get employment for his Albanian like translated degree, I don't know. The real kicker is he also got roped into these mass murders. He's one of the only few people to see Liam Neeson and survive it. Uh, and he provided Liam Neeson the location. So at the very least, he's headed for a really bad police interrogation. At most, he is headed to prison. Just because Liam Neeson's like, I need you to translate. And he's like, all right, cool. I need money. Oh, man. When it applies, this is a fucking great bit. And I would yes. love it to stay when it applies. Okay. The Scotty one to guard baddest beat. Who got the? Who was the first one of the Scotty one to guard baddest beat? I want to say it's it's Isabel, but it's hard to know <laughs> because we don't really get to find out what happens in taking two to poor Isabel. I think I think her children dying is enough to give her the award. She, she gets shot in the arm, and then Liam Neeson's like, "It's just a fresh wound." He downplays it <laughs> immediately to her husband and her, and then is like, "I'll shoot you again." <laughs> From like point blank range too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So congrats to Isabel. You are the first one of the Scotty one to guard baddest beat. Um nice. We did talk about how many kills in this movie. Nick, do you have a guess? Twenty six. Okay. The answer is thirty five, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that seems like more than Yeah, seems it a lot. start off. Kills a lot of dudes really fast, yes. huh? Well, well, think about the six the apartment. Yeah, yes, it's like six at a time. Okay, yeah. It's the apartment scene. It's the the underground pipe scene, and then yeah. it's the boat scene where he's just mowing through all of these guys. So. It's true. The boat scene gets very shooty. Before that, it's a lot of ba 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 hands 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 punches punches <laughs> kicks. And then we get on the boat and he starts pew pew pew. He just goes bastards and starts shooting them. Yeah. <laughs> This is off the rails. My villain with Guy Liner counter uh, was at two. And so I want to talk about another movie with Guy Liner, Elvis. It's time for the uh, Colonel Tom Parker Award this week. I am the legendary Colonel Tom Parker. We are the same, you and I. We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. Are you ready to fly? Number one contender, uh, Jean-Claude Petrel, played by Oliver Rabardin. Um, wow. He's chewing. He's having some time. No, he's not chewing. He's reading <laughs> off of a fucking note card somebody's holding <laughs> up. It's been a long time. It is good to see you. Yes, Brian Mills. You found me. I am in Paris. I'll tell them to stop running now. <laughs> oh, my favorite. My favorite line is when he goes with the gun. 
Let's get going. Dinner is over. It's like, that's the line? My expenses are X. My overhead is Y. Yeah, it's <laughs> awful. He is so bad. He's so bad. And he's like, Brian, try not to make a mess. It's like, what are you talking? He's, he's, you know he's going to. And also, in a movie that is like we've talked about, a sh- pretty shitty movie, but has some solid acting. Yeah. He is. He sticks out like a sore fucking thumb. He is so bad. Like, I would Isab- even argue Isabel is good. Yes. He's better than him. I was <laughs> going to say she shows him up in five seconds. Yeah. She's, like, really friendly and cordial, and I buy that she likes Liam Neeson. But then I'm like, what does Jean-Claude do? Because all I hear is he was behind a desk for five years. Yeah, I, I buy her obliviousness to his, like, lifestyle. And she's like, what do you mm-hmm. mean? What What's going on? Yeah. Yes. She shows literally shows him up in, like, one scene. <laughs> It's it's a bad beat for him. We should have put him in the Ryan, one. Try not to make a mess. <laughs> my salary is X. My expenses are Y. The only other contender I had was, was Liam Neeson because of the voice slips. Um, again, I want to quote the line from when he shoots Isabel. It's a flesh wound, but if you don't get me what I need, the last thing you'll see before I make your children orphans is a bullet I put between her eyes. It's like, what a hero, folks. That's our main action hero. Or Liam Neeson literally sounds like a leprechaun. Like, <laughs> yes. Which is, now's not the time for dick measuring, Stuart. It's like, now's not the time for dick measuring, Stuart. <laughs> That's sad. It has to go to Jean Claude, right? Because he's in this movie he's way stinks. too much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations to the Jean Claude family. You've got the Scotty <laughs> Wondergaard on one mantle, and you've got the Colonel Tom Parker on the next. Not sure who's going to be able to get it because both your parents are dead. Both the kids are dead, but, you know, we'll give it to your grandparents maybe, I guess. (laughs) Sorry for your loss. Here's the Scotty Wondergaard Award. Sorry for all of your losses. Uh, Who is a Scotty Wondergaard? Folks, we're sorry for talking about taking this long. (laughs) Let's get the hell Uh, out of here. Folks, like, rate, subscribe. Check out the podcast wherever you listen. Look at that Instagram, road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out.